So I say, well, everyone's not creative, and everybody goes, oh, that's terrible. It's like, it's not so terrible. It's not self-evident that you would curse someone with high levels of creativity. You know, you hear very frequently people say things like, everyone's creative. It's like, that's wrong, okay? It's wrong. It's just as wrong as saying that everyone's extroverted. First of all, you have to be pretty damn smart to be creative because otherwise you're just going to get to where other people have already got and that's not creative by definition. So being fast and being out there at the front of things really makes a difference and then you also have to have these divergent thinking capabilities and that's part of your trait structure. And creative people are really different than non-creative people. You know, partly because, for example, they're highly motivated to do creative things and to experience novelty and to chase down aesthetic experiences and to attend movies and to read fiction and to go to museums and to enjoy poetry and, and to enjoy music that's not conventional music, for example. These aren't trivial differences. And so it's a real misstatement to make the proposition that everyone's creative. It's just simply not the case. It's a matter of wishful thinking. It's like saying that everyone's intelligent. Well, if everyone's intelligent, then the term loses all of its meaning because any term that you can apply to every member of a category has absolutely no meaning. Now, and you know, the other thing you want to be thinking about here is that don't be thinking that creativity is such a good thing. It's a high risk, high return strategy. So if you're creative, you just try this. There's creative people in this room, man. You guys are going to have a hell of a time monetizing your creativity. It's virtually impossible. It's really, really difficult because first of all, let's say you make an original product. You think the world will beat a pathway to your door if you build a better mousetrap. It's like, that's complete rubbish. It isn't true in the least. If you make a good creative product, you've probably solved about 5% of your problem. Because then you have marketing, which is insanely difficult, and then you have sales, and then you have customer support, and then you have to build an organization. And if it's really novel, you have to tell people what the hell the thing is. No one knows what that is, and that's a real problem. If you write a book, well, then you have the problem that another million people have also written a book. But if you produce something that's completely new and doesn't have a category, people can't search for it online. How are they going to find it? And then you have pricing problems, and it's really unbelievably difficult to produce something creative and then monetize it. And even worse, if you're the creative person, let's say you have a spectacular invention. You've got no money, right? You've got no customers. Those are big problems. And so maybe you go and you find a venture capitalist. We start with family and friends, because that's how it works. You raise money for your product. You raise money from your family and friends. That's assuming you have family and friends that have some money and that they're going to give it to you. And most people aren't in that situation. So it's a terrible barrier right off the bat. And then, of course, you're putting your family and friends at substantial financial risk because the probability that your stupid idea is going to make money is virtually zero, even if it's a really brilliant idea. And so then let's say, well, you get past family and friends and you get venture capitalists involved because that's often the next step. There's steps in building a business. Family and friends, angel investor, that's some rich guy that you've happened to meet some manner, some way who's, who's into this sort of thing and is willing to provide you with some money to get your product off the ground. Well, how much of your product is that person going to take? Well, most of it. Most of it. And no wonder because, you know, you don't have any money. How are you going to bargain for control over your product? He'll just say, well, do you want the money or not? And if your answer is no, then he'll go and do something else with his money. It's not like there's no shortage of things that you can do with your money. There's a million things you can do with it. So you're not in a great bargaining position. And then if you get venture capitalists involved, they'll take another big chunk. And maybe if they're not very straight with you, they'll just throw you out. 
because maybe by that point in the company's development, you're nothing but a pain in the neck because what do you know about marketing and sales and customer service and building an organization and running a business? Like you don't have a clue, so why do they need you? So even if you're successful at generating a new idea and you put it into a business, the probability that you as the originator of the idea are going to make some money from it is very, very low. So don't be thinking that creativity is such a, is something you would want to curse yourself with. Now, you know, it's not all bad because it, it opens up avenues of experience for creative people that aren't available to people who aren't creative. But it definitely is a high risk, high return strategy. You know, so the overwhelming probability is that you will fail. But a small proportion of creative people succeed spectacularly. And so it's like a lottery in some sense. You're probably going to lose. But if you don't lose, you could win big. And that keeps a lot of creative people going. But also, they don't really have much choice in it. Because if you're a creative person, you're like a fruit tree that's bearing fruit. You can suppress it, but it's very bad for you. You know, the creative people I've worked with is if they're not creative, they're miserable. So they have to do it. You know, there's real joy and, and pleasure in it and, and psychological utility. But it's certainly not a conservative strategy for moving forward through life. And you know, whenever I talk to people who are creative, and you, you guys should listen to this, because I know what I'm talking about. If you happen to be creative, if you're a songwriter, or another kind of musician, or an artist, or any of the other number of things that you might be, find a way to make money, and then practice your craft on the side, because you'll starve to death otherwise. Now, for some of you, that won't be true, but it's a tiny minority. Your best bet is to find a job that will keep body and soul together and parse off some time that you can pursue your creative thing because then, well, as a long-term strategy, a medium to long-term strategy, it's a better one. But it's got incredibly difficult for people, musicians, for example, it's incredibly difficult for new musicians to monetize their craft, even if they're really, really good at it. There's this idea in Jungian psychology called the circumambulation. And Jung had this idea that you had a potential future self, which would be in potential everything that you could be. And that it manifests itself moment to moment in your present life by making you interested in things. And the things that you're interested in are the things that would guide you along the path that would lead you to maximal development. Now, it sounds like a metaphysical idea or a or a mystical idea even, but, but it's not, it's, it's not, it's a really profoundly biological idea. The idea is something like, well, you're set up so that you're automatically interested in those things that would fully expand you as a well-adapted creature. Well, like, there's nothing radical about that idea. What else could possibly be the case unless there's something fundamentally flawed about you? That is what the the situation would be. It's kind of interesting to think about how that would be manifest moment to moment, but the idea is something like, well, your interest is captured by those things that lead you down the path of development. Well, that better be the case. Okay, so that's fine. And so there's some utility in pursuing those things that you're interested in. That's the call to adventure, let's say. So, and the call to adventure takes you all sorts of places. Now, the problem with the call to adventure is, like, what the hell do you know? 
you might be interested in things that are kind of warped and bent. And often it's the case that when new parts of people manifest themselves and grip their interests, say, they do it very badly and shoddily. And so you stumble around like an idiot when you try to do something new. That's why the fool is the precursor to the savior from the, from the symbolic perspectives, because you have to be a fool before you can be a master. And if you're not willing to be a fool, then you can't be a master. So, so you're going to... It's, it's an error, <clears throat> error-ridden process, and that's also laid out in the Old Testament stories because the first thing that happens to all these patriarchal figures when God kicks them out of their father's house when they're like 84 is that they, they run into all sorts of trouble, and some of it's social, and some of it's natural, and some of it's a consequence of their own moral inadequacy. So they're fools. And, but, but the thing that's so interesting is that despite the fact that they're fools, they're still supposed to go on the adventure and that they're capable of learning enough as a consequence of moving forward on the adventure so that they straighten themselves out across time. And so it's something like this. This circumambulation that Jung talked about was this continual circling, in some sense, of who you could be. You might notice, for example, that there are themes in your life. You know, when you go back across your experiences, you see you kind of have your typical experience that sort of repeats itself. And there might be variation on it, like a musical theme, but it's, it's like you're, you're circling yourself and getting closer to yourself as you move across time. That's the circumambulation. Now, you remember that for a sec, because we'll go back to it. Okay, so imagine that something glimmers before you. It's an, an interest that's dawning, and you decide, well, first of all, you're paralyzed. You think, well, how do I know if I should pursue that? It's probably a stupid idea. And the proper response to that is, you're right, it probably is a stupid idea. Because almost all ideas are stupid. And so, the probability that as you move forward on your adventure, that you're going to get it right the first time, is zero. It's just not going to happen. And so then you might think, well, maybe I'll just wait around until I get the right idea. And which people do, right? So they're like 40-year-old, 13-year-olds, which is not a good idea. And so they wait around until it's waiting for Godot, until... They finally got it right, but the problem is you're too stupid to know when you've got it right. So waiting around isn't going to help, because even if it, the perfect opportunity manifested itself to you in your incomplete form, the probability that you would recognize it as the perfect opportunity is zero. You might even think it's the worst possible idea that you've ever heard of anywhere. Highly likely. Highly likely. So Nietzsche called that a will to stupidity, which I really liked. Because he thought of stupidity as being, it, you know, it's, it's, you have to take it into account fundamentally and work with it. And so, and so you can take these tentative steps on your pathway to destiny and you can assume that you're going to do it badly. And that's really useful because you don't have to beat yourself up. It's pretty easy to do it badly. But the thing is, it's way better to do it badly than not to do it at all. And that's a hell of a lot better than just rotting away at home. So that's good. And so why is that? Well, okay, so you, you start your path and you think that you're heading, you know, towards your star. And so you go in that direction. And then, because you're here, the world looks a particular way. But then when you move here, the world looks different. And you're different as a consequence of having made that voyage. And so what that means is that now that thing that glimmers in front of you is going to have shifted its location. Because you weren't very good at specifying it to begin with, and now that you're a little sharper and more focused than you were, it's going to reveal itself with more accuracy to you. And so then you have to take a 
you know, it's almost like 180 degree reversal. But it isn't because, you know, you've, I mean, you've gone this far and that's a long ways to get that far. But that's a lot farther than you would be if you just stayed where you were waiting. And so it doesn't matter that you overshoot continually. Because as you overshoot, even if you don't learn what you should have done, you're going to continually learn what you shouldn't keep doing. And if you learn enough about what you shouldn't keep doing, then that's tantamount at some point to learning at the same time what you should be doing. So it's okay. Now, what's cool about it though, I think, is that as you progress, the degree of overshooting starts to decline, right? There's nothing hypothetical about that. As you learn a new skill, like even to play a song on the piano, for example, you overshoot madly. You're making all sorts of mistakes to begin with, and then the mistakes, they disappear. There's a great TED talk, I think it was, about this guy uh, set up a really advanced computational recording system in his home and recorded every single utterance his young child made while learning to speak. And then he put together the child's attempts to say certain phonemes and put them in a list and you can hear the child deviating madly to begin with and then after hundreds and hundreds of repetitions just zeroing right in on the exact phoneme. So you might not know this, but when kids babble because they start babbling when they're quite young, they babble every human phoneme, including all sorts of phonemes that adults can't say. And then they, they die into their language so that after they learn, say, English, then there's all sorts of phonemes they can no longer hear or pronounce. But to begin with, it's all there, which is really quite interesting. But as they learn a particular language, they zero in on the proper way to pronounce that, and their errors minimize. And every time you learn something, that's how it is. And that's really useful to know, too, because it means that it's okay to wander around stupidly before you fix your destination. Now, you see that echoed in Exodus, right? Because what happens is that the Hebrews escape a tyranny, which is kind of whatever you do personally and psychologically when you escape from your previous set of stupidly held and ignorant and stubborn axioms. It's like away from that tyranny. It's like, great, I freed myself from that. Well, then what? Well, you think, well, now I'm on the way. It's no, you're not. Now you're in the desert where you wander around stupidly, you know, and worship the wrong things until you finally organize yourself morally again and head in the proper direction. So that's worth knowing too, because you think, well, I got rid of a lot of things, baggage, excess baggage that I didn't need in my life, and now everything's okay. It's like, no, it's not. You've got rid of a whole set of scaffolds that were keeping you in place, even though they were pathological. And now you have nothing, and nothing actually turns out to be better than something pathological, but you're still stuck with the problem of nothing, and, and that's, well, that's exactly why Exodus is structured the way that it is. It's that you escape from a tyranny. It's, hooray, we're no longer slaves. Yeah, well, now you're nihilistic and lost. It's not necessarily an improvement. But see, it's also useful to know that because you can also be deluded into the idea that, imagine that you're trying to become enlightened, which might mean to turn all those parts of you on that could be turned on. You think, well, that's just a linear pathway uphill. You know, it's just from one success to another. It's, no, it's not. It's like, here you are, and you're not doing too badly, and the first step is a complete bloody catastrophe. It's worse. And then maybe you can pull yourself together, and you hit a new plateau, and then that crumbles and shakes, and bang, it's worse again. And so, 
because part of the reason that people don't become enlightened is because it's punctuated by intermittent deserts, essentially, by intermittent catastrophes. And if you don't know that, well, then you're basically screwed because you go ahead on your movement forward and you collapse and you think, well, that didn't work, I collapsed. It's like, no, that's par for the course. It's not indication that you failed, it's just indication that it's really hard. And that when you learn something, you also unlearn something. And the thing you unlearned is probably useful, and unlearning it actually is painful. You know, let's say if you have to get out of a bad relationship. There isn't any relationship that's 100% bad. And so when you jump out of it, well, maybe you're in better shape, but you're still lonesome and disoriented, and you don't know what your past was, and you don't know what your present is, and you don't know what your future is. It's, that's why people stay with the devil they know instead of, you know, looking for the devil they don't know. So... So anyways, the fact that you're full of faults doesn't mean you have to stop. And thank God for that. That's a really useful thing. And the fact that you're full of faults doesn't mean that you can't learn. And so you can posit an ideal and you're going to be wrong about it. But it doesn't matter because what you're right about is positing the ideal moving towards it. If the actual ideal isn't conceptualized perfectly, well, first, surprise, surprise, because, like, what are you going to do that's perfect? So it doesn't matter that it's imperfect. It just matters that you do it and that you move forward. So that's really, that's really positive news as far as I'm concerned, because you can actually do that, right? You can do it badly. Anyone can do that. So that's, that's useful. <laughs>